Um, we started last week, and I said, hey, we're going to spend a few weeks, and we're going to look at the life of Jacob. I was talking to Don Guignet this morning, and was, you know, he was saying, hey, are we looking at, at, at St. Jacob this morning? And I said, man, we are. And I'm so glad. I just, I was reminded this week again as I've been studying, I'm so glad Jacob's in the Bible. I am so glad that as, um, as God shows up to Abraham to call him out of the Ur Chaldeans to say, listen, you're, you're through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. Abraham could not have conceived of all that God meant. Ultimately, we know that the seed of Abraham is ultimately going to be Jesus to come down the line, but that this was going to be passed from Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob. And that in God's sovereignty, in, in, in God's desire to show us who he is, that when God set out to redeem the world, when God set out to create a, a genealogy and a bloodline, an earthly human bloodline for the eternal Son of God, he, he doesn't choose a line that is, um, you know, has all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. He doesn't choose a line of people that we would look at and go, you know what, those are the good people. Of course he chose those people. God chooses to do what he's going to do in redeeming the whole world and making the opportunity for the whole world to be redeemed through his son Jesus. And he does that through some of the most weak and frail, and broken, and sinful people. And he does that to show us who he is. See, he's a God who is not afraid of your sin. He's not afraid of your weakness. He's not afraid of your brokenness. He's not afraid of your loneliness. He's not afraid of the mess that you made of your life or are going to make of your life. It's as though God shows up in the very beginning and says, I want you to know who I am. And by knowing who I am, you're going to see more clearly who you are. And by seeing more clearly who you are, you are going to see your need for who I am. And, and that God over and over and over and over again through the pages of Scripture, pours His grace and His love out to all. And for those that would turn to Him, for those in those moments that would say, you know what, I've come to the end of myself, and would cry out to Him, they become the recipients of the infinite grace of the eternal God. And, and so I am so thankful that Jacob is here because Jacob, in all his weakness, helps us know better who God is. So, so I, I'm going to start out, you know, the way I'd say it is, you know, there's, there's probably not a person in here who if you could, you know, if you could, if you could, make some great master edits, some, some great change. You, you would change something about your life, maybe your past, maybe your present, that there's something maybe in your life that has paralyzed you, that, that, that's keeping you from living life like God 
means for you to live it. For in knowing God, how he means for you to know him. You know, we do. We, we wish, you know, gosh, we wish we could edit our past. We wish maybe we could wave a wand and change our present. The thing about this passage is this is a passage that I would call an unedited past. It's, a, it, it's one that, um, you know, the God of the universe is going to have Moses record the ugly past of his covenant people, and I find that remarkable. So here's the context of it. So it's, it's going to be Jacob, and he's going to um, be married, and, and it's, this is the passage. It's the, it's the birth of the, of the 12 tribes of Israel if you will. How does Israel, the nation, come into being? Well, this is the passage that answers that question. And so Moses, he's writing to these Israelites years and years later, generations later, as they're coming out of slavery, out of Egypt. They've just been freed from the hands of the Egyptians, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and they're desperately looking for their identity. And Moses is answering the question, who is God? Who is this God that has redeemed us? He's also answering questions about who they were. They wanted to know how God was working, if he was even working at all in their lives. They desperately needed to know who they were because the reality is life had not turned out for them how they thought it would. Truth is, you live long enough most of our lives don't turn, out, don't turn out like we planned for them to. And I think it would have been easy for Moses to sort of gloss over this past, you know, to set a tone for a, a noble people with a noble past, one without blemish, one without stain. But it is not what we find. What Moses does is carefully, artistically, under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, he, he records the details of a past that is scandalous. And in the midst of doing that, he reveals the depths of their God who is sovereign. So, there's an honest, honesty in these verses I want us to look into. There's an honesty that says that in the midst of our past or the midst of our present, what God is doing in our lives is drawing us to his future. And he's still doing that today. So three things we're going to look at in the depths of God's sovereignty. We looked last week at the depth of God's grace. This week, the depth of God's sovereignty. There is no pain in the depth of God's sovereignty that he does not see. There is no pain or struggle, or heartache that he does not see. The second thing we'll see is that there is no sin that he cannot redeem. And thirdly, there is no past that can disqualify you from a future with him. The depths of God's sovereignty. Look with me. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 29. Go to verse 31, all right? That's where we're going to start. And um, the, uh, the context is you'll, uh, Jacob has, we, we were, he was at Bethel last week, then he goes, he finally meets his uncle Laban, and the first 
two-thirds of the chapter are about his dealings with Laban and how Laban is going to deceive him. So we'll pick up in 31, and I'll fill in the rest of the story. But here in chapter 29, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again, bore a son, and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, now, now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now, as we look at this, the end of 29 and into the beginning of 30, the passage has two types of literature going on. What one type of, and it's like they're interweaved. There's a, it's a narrative. It's telling a narrative. But what it's also doing, it's, it's a genealogy. It's this genealogy um, wrapped up in a narrative. It's one of the most unusual passages with one of the most unusual themes. Side by side, there's tragedy and there's sovereignty. There's rivalry and, 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 and jealousy and envy. At the same time, there's great blessing. There are hopes dashed. There are promises fulfilled. This narrative takes place over a seven-year time period. Jacob has just finished working off the bride price. The beginning of chapter 29, he... um, leaves Bethel. He goes to Haran where his uncle Laban is. He runs into this gal named Rachel. She catches his eye. It's love at first sight. He goes to Laban and says, well, whatever I've got to do, I want to do. I want to marry your daughter. Laban says, that's great. Why don't you work for me for um, seven years, and then you can marry her? Well, you know how it goes. Um, He ends up with both Rachel and her older sister, Leah. Verse 30 of chapter 29 sets the scene. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. And in, in verse 31, we're introduced to Leah. She is the unloved wife. The text, it literally reads, she was hated. The older daughter, that's the innocent victim in the whole situation. Jacob loved Rachel. He bargained for Rachel. He was given Leah. Leah never caught his eye. He he didn't want her. Seems maybe her dad didn't want her either. May have been worried that her time was passing and she wasn't going to get any offers. And so what Laban does is he sneaks her into the wedding dress and then into the bedroom. I've read this passage 
And I've read commentaries on this passage. And I've read commentaries on the commentaries on this passage. I'm not sure how that happened. Where you thought you married one gal and woke up with another. And yet, I hear it in marriage counseling all the time. <laughs> this is not the person I married. Well, maybe Leah thought that she, you know, once the dust settled, she could win the affection of Jacob. Maybe she secretly hoped that Jacob would embrace her as his beloved wife. That never happens. Notice how the narrator, Moses, notice how he opens the passage up from heaven's perspective. It's through the eyes of God that we're going to be introduced to the scene. Do you see it there in verse 31? When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. So from the very beginning, Moses, he wants us to know that this this heartache, this tragedy, this loneliness, this, this, you know, life didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to, that does not go unnoticed by God. And not only did he see the situation, he's listening to her heart, verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. God has seen her situation. He has heard the cries of her heart. He's compassionately blessed her with children. The names of the children here are very important. They give us a glimpse into the heart of this unloved woman. Her first son's named Reuben. Literally, it means, you know, see a son. The Lord has seen my affliction. That's what she names her son. The second son's named Simeon. But because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. Her third son, Levi, she, it's, it's an expression of her hope, you know, that her husband will finally become attached to her. That's what Levi means, attached. Her hopes are unrealized, though. And it's with the naming of her fourth son that we see a woman who finds the ability to praise the Lord in the midst of her pain. That's Judah. See, the compassionate and sovereign God sees and hears and responds to the affliction of his people. And listen, we need to know that today. As much as the original readers needed to know that 4,000 years ago, but notice that even though, even though Leah's earthly desires were not fulfilled, God's sovereignty was being accomplished. God comes to the aid of Leah, and in his sovereignty, he blessed her with four sons as a testimony of his faithfulness. Leah's situation with Jacob is unchanged, but God's lavished his blessing on her. He didn't change the situation, but he blessed her in the midst of it. Now, here's what's great. But Leah isn't even aware of the extent of the blessing until she's in the presence of the Lord. For from her womb, you know who comes? Moses, David, 
and the eternal Son of God, Jesus. She's ushered into the presence of God and met by the Son of God who greets her and says, great, 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 great grandma. And I'm sure she had no idea what to do with that. Listen, life's probably dealt you some disappointments. Things haven't turned out like you thought that they would. Maybe your career, your family, your, your marriage, your kids. Maybe you find yourself, even this morning, in the midst of, of some circumstance, thinking, I want, where is God in all of this? And I have no doubt Leah was asking the same questions. Life didn't turn out how she planned it. I'm sure she never dreamed of marrying her sister's husband. I have sisters. That's not what they dream about. I'm sure she never dreamed of marrying a man who didn't love her. In fact, hated her. But in this passage, she comes face to face with a God who sees and hears. Don't miss that. He sees and he hears. What we learn about God and the depths of his sovereignty here are is that he sees and he hears. He knows exactly where you are, what you're going through, what you're experiencing in life right now. He sees every detail. He hears every cry of your heart. And get this. He has attached himself to you through his son, Jesus Christ, who's worthy to be praised. Listen, God, God may not choose to change the situation that you're in. He, he might not give you the life that you've always hoped for and thought that you might have, and even if he doesn't. He will bless you. He sees and he hears. This is the same God who told the Israelites in Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or through Isaiah to the people of his day, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. Matthew 28, where Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or in Revelation 22, where he says, behold, I'm coming soon. I tell you, it's a sad four verses here. But it's good stuff. In fact, it's so good, I don't even want to go to the next part. Because the next part, it's dirty. It's ugly. In fact, the next part is, is, is almost more, more heartache than I can take. Look at how it goes. Verse, verses, uh, chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... She envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Verse 
That's pain. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, Here's my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Well, chapter 30 opens up, and the story is begging for a hero. And it doesn't take you one verse to realize Jacob's not the hero. God is going to have to be the hero of this story. And then you stop in verse 3, and she says, here, I've got an idea. I have a servant named Bilhah. And you think, why in the world would she do that? Why would Rachel give her maidservant to her husband? She must have known Jacob's grandmother did the same thing, and it was a terrible mess. Surely she knew of her uncle, of Jacob's uncle Ishmael, and how he'd been sent away with his mother Hagar. In fact, we know she knows because she quotes Sarah. That threw her too. I can build a family. You can look it up in Genesis 16 too when you have a chance. You find history is repeating itself. So why would she have done this? Why would she take matters into her own hands? Well, it's the same reason you and I do it. Look again at verse 1 with me. Look at what it says. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children. It's, it's, it's the first couple of words that are key, when Rachel saw. So if you remember, back in 2931, just a few verses before, the, 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 the words are, when the Lord saw. And the author, he was letting us know that this was God's perspective that we're viewing Leah's situation. Here, we, we're seeing things from Rachel's perspective. It's what happens when we get focused on ourselves. It's what happens when we fail to come at life from God's perspective. We set out to try to solve our own problems. We seek to make things right on our own. We, we try to meet our own needs. And let me tell you something. God has never intended this for his people. He didn't back in Sarah's day or in Rachel's day or in King David's time or for the churches that Paul wrote the letters to or for us in the 21st century. It is not a part of the program. It's not a part of the design. When we do that, we are guaranteed to create a mess because when we do that, we make gods of ourselves. It doesn't mean that sometimes there won't be good things that come out of it. They will, and that's because of God's sovereignty who will choose to work in spite of us, not because of us. But if we set out to try to meet our own needs, here's what I can guarantee you. You will never be satisfied. You'll never find what you're looking for. You will wander this earth in search of a heavenly blessing. And find yourself increasingly dissatisfied with your life on earth. Well, what happens is Rachel and Leah will spend the next 21 verses trying to do it on their own. And they create a mess, a family 
mess that lasts for centuries. Jealousy, bitterness, strife, all of this will become part of the sons of Jacob for the rest of the Old Testament. Rachel and Leah, both unable to produce children at this point. Rachel's barren, Leah's probably been forsaken. They're going to give their maidservants to their husband. And then this whole rivalry ratchets all the way up. All right, listen to this. So you get into uh, the next few verses. I'll, I'll summarize them for you. Rachel's maidservant, uh, Bilhah, has two children. One is Dan and the other is Naphtali. Dan means God has vindicated me. Naphtali means with mighty wrestling I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. but was she vindicated or prevailed? Her womb is still barren, and worse than that, her heart is still bitter. So Leah gets on the act, and she, she's going to give um, Zilpah, her maidservant, to Jacob, and one commentary entitled it, Tit for Tat. Two children from this affair, Gad and Asher. Gad means how fortunate. Asher means happy am I. You don't have to read much further to know she's neither fortunate, feels fortunate, nor is she happy. What you find is these two sisters are naming the children of their maidservants as insults like they're hurling at each other. God's vindicated me. Oh, yeah? Well, happy am I. Well, oh, yeah? I prevailed over you when I wrestled with you. Well, yeah, well, happy am I. That's what's happening. Listen, it gets even worse than that. Listen, our own sinful attempts to meet our needs don't satisfy. In verses 14 through 18, here's what the sisters end up doing. In their desperation, they engage now in the buying and selling of the conjugal rights of their husband. They're using mandrakes, uh, ancient fertility. They're competing for love. They're competing for attention. They're competing for recognition. They're competing for blessings. And they reduce Jacob as to someone who can be bought and sold. Well, Rachel remains barren. Leah, she's going to have two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun, but she remains unloved. And the narrator's clear to say, listen, the mandrakes, the buying, the selling, this had nothing to do with it. God does what he's going to do. God's the one that opens a womb. And we get to this place and we ask ourselves, how in the world? I mean, in this portion there, in, is there any way that God's will is being accomplished in all of this? And I would say the answer is yes and no. His will is being accomplished in that his, his sovereignty is deeper than all of their sin, is deeper than all of their fixing life for themselves and turning it into a mess. His sovereignty is, his, has depth greater than all of that. He continues to add to the, Jacob of, uh, the family of Jacob. He continues to fulfill the promise he's made to Jacob. But the answer is no, in that we have no idea 
how God would have accomplished this if Jacob had responded to Rachel's barrenness like his father and grandfather did to the barrenness of their wives. Abraham by faith, Isaac by prayer. We don't have any idea about that. All we know is we come to the end of this portion of Scripture and God's will is accomplished. But with it, there's a relational mess that continues throughout the history of Jacob's sons. I mean, you can imagine as Moses is telling this story to the 12 tribes of Israel wandering in the desert, really hopeful. Well, we must be a real noble people. I mean, God's rescued us from Egypt. He's brought us out, taken us to a promised land. Hey, tell us where we came from, Moses. Okay. Um, it's, it's not good. In fact, it's pretty bad. And it still lives on in you now. That's why God's going to have to give us the rest of the, of the Pentateuch and all the laws. Because we're, while we're supposed to be brothers and sisters, we've come from the same family. In fact, we're called Israel. That's going to be Jacob's new name. We'll find out in a couple of weeks. We, 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 we all live with and are the products of a terrible family strife that has lived down through the generations. But God can redeem that. See, the next bit I want you to see is just a couple of verses beginning in 22. You might expect as you do, as you read Genesis, you, you keep waiting for God to, to start over again that he'd get fed up with all the characters, the story to end, and, and, and hope to pick up with a, with a new generation or a new people, but the story doesn't end. And despite her past, Rachel's, and despite her actions of the previous verses, notice how verse 22 begins. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her, heart, to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she's called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. God remembered Rachel. And we're to understand from that what, what Rachel has done now is she's finally turned to God in prayer. She's given up, at least for the moment, her quest at self-fulfillment and is turned her petition towards God, and God gave heed to her. He listened to her. She names her son Joseph, which literally means, may the Lord give me another son. Not only has God opened her womb, more importantly, he has instilled a hope for her future. This time, the hope's not in herself, it's not in Jacob, it's not in her own efforts. It's in the Lord God. See, what we find from Rachel here is that in God's sovereignty, our past doesn't disqualify us from our future. The moment we turn, the moment we, we, we turn our hope, we turn our expectations, we turn our life towards God, he's there, he's listening. We find he's been listening all along. It, it's submitting to him, saying, listen, okay, you're... 
you're greater than I am. I can't fix what's wrong with me. I can't clean up the mess I've made. But I can give it to you. And the moment you do that, you find that your, your past hasn't disqualified you from your present or your future. In fact, it alters your course. But too often, this is the end of the story. Why can't that be the beginning? Beginning in your life as a believer, beginning in your marriage, beginning in your ministry. Many of you are here, you're here because the Lord's altered the course of your life. But the danger is we get on that new course and then we, we pick up those old habits. We begin to take things back from God, back into our own control. The rest of Rachel's story, she's not a stalwart of faith by any means. We continually need to hand our life over to God. We continually need to see life through his eyes and from his perspective and more and more understand truly who God is. I want to close with a uh, Lynn Thompson wrote this for the Discipleship Journal a couple of years ago. The title of it is Children of Lesser Gods. She begins the article by writing about this particular tragedy that hit her friend and it shook her view of God and she, then she says, listen, tragedies, hardships, suffering, loneliness, tragedies uncover what you really believe about God. She goes on, throughout this season I searched for meaning and tried to make sense out of what I believe to be senseless. When I finally tried to summarize my feelings, I was surprised to find I felt betrayed by God. I believed God was my best friend, yet, he, yet it seemed that he'd stabbed me in the back. How could he allow this thing to happen to such good people, his people? Who was this God whom I worshipped each Sunday and prayed to and visited with all week long? Then God whispered ever so softly, it's not me. It's not me. In time, I learned I'd been worshiping the wrong God. Actually, gods. There were five of them. Each embodied attitudes I attempted to place on the one true God. Scripture eventually helped me recognize and refute those gods. Today, I sometimes struggle, but I've embraced the great I am, the lesser gods I left behind, the God who does things my way, the God who's out to harm me, the God who's ambivalent, doesn't care. The God who's impotent and can't do anything. And the God who's changing and can never be counted on. She said, I had to accept that God had chosen to conduct his business differently than I would have. Scripture reveals a God who's whose ways little resemble our own. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And I have to admit there's a God way of thinking 
that I'll never fully be able to apprehend. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And I have to admit that however right it seems, going my own way apart from God's divine insight, doesn't lead me down the correct path. I need a God who knows more than I am. And who isn't in need of my perceived brilliance. And when I see that God, I'm finally humbled. As I've embraced the God who does things His way, I have rested in His blessings and His glorious insight. Craig Barnes says, nothing makes it harder to see God than our expectations of Him. He pours out His grace as He reveals who He is to us through His Bible. We saw that last week. And we need to know that wherever we are, His sovereignty is deeper. His grace is deeper. We go to Him. And for everything in your life you're saying this morning, listen, okay, listen, I've got this one thing, and if only... If only this thing was solved, if only this thing was taken care of, if only this thing was different, then I would be happy. Then I promise you, you are on the road to anguish and bitterness and a life unfulfilled. The promises of God, the mercy and grace and compassion of His character. This is the story that he means to write with our lives. Let me ask you, have you turned to him? As you begin to tell your story, is it that God's, God sees me in this, or is it one defined by your own perspective? This is what I see. Let me invite you to turn your life over to the Lord. Let me invite you to turn today over to Him. Seek His blessing. Renounce yourself off of the throne. And bow before His. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray You would do what only You can do. And that is that You you would shake us awake by your grace? Would you reveal in the places in our life that when we see you wrongly or we're, we're looking to ourselves to meet our own needs, needs that only you can meet? Father, maybe we're looking to somebody else to meet needs that only you can meet. Father, I pray we'd, you'd draw us into a quiet place to hear you. Father, in a moment to know that you, you see us, you hear us, that you love us, that you're pouring your grace out on us. Father, I pray this morning we would leave here walking with you. 
And we can do this only because of the gift and the grace of your Son, Jesus, who has made it possible for us to be attached to you. So, Father, we pray the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.